Hey, folks. This is the podcast of Principia Journal of Classical Education. I'm Brian Williams, general editor of Principia Journal and host of Principia Podcast, recording a couple miles from Valley Forge on the outskirts of historic Philadelphia. Uh, this is episode one of Principia Podcast, a less formal or more informal version of the journal where I converse with authors of Principia articles and other scholars connected to contemporary classical education, and where I muse about key moments, educators, texts, and ideas in the long tradition of classical liberal arts education. Now, for the first couple episodes, I'm going to be musing about tradition. Now, you might think that something called Principia meaning first principles or the elemental and primary things, would start with the idea of tradition. Because tradition refers to what comes second, third, fourth, or fortieth after that which comes first. But my sense is that most people involved with classical education or who have heard about classical education generally understand the Principia idea that classical education attends to or returns to first things, right? Original sources, ad fontes, philosophical first principles, first principles of practical reasoning, those kinds of things, or first authors and educators in the tradition. But they often have the mistaken notion that classical education means trying to imitate, for instance, the Greeks or the Romans of the classical eras or trying to replicate their schools or teaching only what they taught and how they taught it. Now, some of this might be a confusion between what are called classical schools and programs and the academic discipline of classics. Right, classics programs, to the extent that they still exist, like the one at Baylor University and elsewhere, generally focus exclusively on the Greek and Latin languages, history, literature, and culture. And while classical languages and literature are important to the tradition of classical education and always have been, they're not the same thing. The tradition of classical liberal arts education is much older than the discipline of classics, even though the classical languages and literature have always been an important part of that tradition they haven't been the sum of it. Some of us have actually discussed whether classical is even the best term to use for to describe what we're trying to do. And given the possible confusion between classics and classical, but most of our conversations end with acknowledging that probably the best term we have. And so we stick with it for now. But it is good to get some conceptual clarity on this. Maybe this is just me working out my own questions, but this question of how classical classical education is, or better, how Greek and Roman it is, was really one of the first questions I grappled with when I encountered uh, classical education 20 years ago, started teaching in a school, and was told that what we were doing was, quote unquote, classical, and that we were recovering classical education. And here's the progymnosmata, so go get to it. And I asked, you know, fine, great, but could I see the Attic Hellenistic or Augustan manuals that laid out the methods and materials or the pedagogy and content of their K-12 schools? Where, where can I find the scope and sequence of education offered in, you know, 4th century BC or the 2nd century AD? You know, I asked, 
Essentially, is there an ancient version of classical conversations or a classical academic press or the Ambrose Academy curriculum guide that would help me see the scope of what we are, quote unquote, recovering or renewing? But I guess in some ways I was looking for an educational equivalent of Phidias's original blueprints for the Parthenon or Vespasian's for the Roman Colosseum. Not that Vespasian lifted a finger, of course. So we could construct an exact model or a replica. We were trying to you know, recover this thing. So what exactly was it? And if we didn't have this kind of blueprint, how would we know that we're doing the same things they did in the classical eras? Right. I mean, at least we can go see the Parthenon or the Colosseum and take measurements if we wanted to build an exact replica. Now, perhaps it's because I'm from the show me state of Missouri or grew up dreaming of being a trial lawyer. No kidding. Or maybe just because I was a 1980s punk rock kid. But I've never been great at simply accepting what someone else tells me. Right? I always wanted to be shown the evidence to see the argument, and generally come to the conclusion for myself. Now, if you ask my mom, that didn't always make me an easy child to parent, but it did make me a halfway decent academic. So I was determined to dig into the classical educators so I could have confidence that what I was doing and that we were doing in the school I was teaching at really was classical. Or if not, to be able to understand what we were doing and why it didn't need to merely replicate what the Greeks and Romans had done. So you won't be surprised. I discovered rather quickly that there isn't one unchanging manual. There isn't a definitive scope and sequence handbook of classical education. There are lots of practical books of grammar, astronomy, rhetoric, mathematics, and so forth that I've found since, but only a few of them come from the classical era, and I've yet to discover the curriculum and pedagogy, pedagogy side guide that I was seeking. Well, you might say, okay, well, what about the seven liberal arts? Fine, but it took a thousand years for the seven to be accepted as the core liberal arts, and even those were never the sum of education, and they weren't even the earliest disciplines a child would learn or the last that a scholar would explore. So, maybe a little slower than many of you, I came to see that the tradition of classical liberal arts education is not a set of prepackaged IKEA bookshelves or a tidy recipe I can follow while watching Premier League soccer games on a Saturday morning. It's not a lesson plan that someone else wrote and handed us to follow. Instead, I discovered that the tradition of classical liberal arts education is just that, a tradition, a traditum, a set of practices or beliefs, a body of knowledge, an ethos, an embodied vision and way of pursuing some good which has been handed on, handed over and passed down. Right. If you know your Latin, trado, tradere, tradidi, traditas. But it's one in which many of the particulars have changed. They've developed, even though there is an abiding vision that relates paideia to eudaimonia. So I realized that the work of contemporary classical educators and education was less the work of an archaeologist, a scribe, or a mere copyist, and more the work of a caretaker or steward, or possibly a creative curator nurturing and developing a precious endowment. You know, okay, of course, we all find ourselves practicing traditions of one sort or another, right? We speak of things being traditional, traditional food, traditional dress, traditional customs, traditional morals, 
Traditions around holidays, which usually means what we eat on what holiday and with whom. Uh, traditional rites of passage, you know, the way we give birth, the way we graduate students, marry each other, and bury each other. Traditions in sports, like that very strange American tradition of singing the U.S. national anthem before basketball games, football games, soccer games, and baseball games. This is American civil religion at its best. And of course, academic traditions, right? The regalia worn at matriculation, convocation, commencement, and so forth. So we know traditions. I have to note that uh, a couple of days ago, I saw that my alma mater, the University of Oxford, held its annual Encania celebration, which was postponed from its usual time during the ninth week of Trinity term. And when I say usual, I mean usual, since some version of this has been held since at least the late 1400s when it was held in the University Church of St. Mary's and apparently included satirical and often salacious and scandalous speeches from someone dressed up like Terre Philus, son of the earth. And then the honorary degrees would be conferred. Uh, but the university website tells me that people thought it was inappropriate to have these scandalous speeches in the university church. So 200 years later, it was moved to the Sheldonian Theater uh, designed by Sir Christopher Wren, and it took its current form by 1760. Yes, 260 years ago, it finally took its current form. But I'm sure that's not even true. I'm sure there are many differences between the seven. 1960 version of Encania and today. But here's what happens today every year. The university dignitaries meet for peaches, strawberries, and champagne in the courtyard of one of the colleges with the honorees and then the whole company in full academic regalia. And because it's Oxford, I mean full academic regalia. Walk behind the university beetles. You can look up what the Oxford Beatles are. They walk to the Sheldonian Theater, where most of the ceremony is in Latin, where the honorees sign their names in the honorary degrees book in the old Divinity Hall, which I'm sure is a leather-bound book that flies off the shelf by itself. Then afterward, the vice chancellor leads the honorees through the streets uh, into Radcliffe Square, into All Souls College, where they have a celebration lunch before they have a celebration garden party later in the day. Now, a couple days ago, uh, one of the honorees was Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. And while I was there, uh, there was the filmmaker Pedro Almodovar, uh, Apple's chief design officer, Johnny Ive, composer, composer Arvo Pert, author Hillary Mantel, uh, playwright Tom Stoppard, and activist Brian Stevenson, plus a number of academics who received honorary doctorates. And it was always fun to leave the library and go out in the streets and see this traditioned parade of honorees uh, march through the streets. Super fun uh, to see Brian Stevenson there, author of Just Mercy and founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, because he's a graduate of Eastern University, uh, where I now work. Now, the entire traditioned ceremony of Encania is designed to embody or signify or manifest in some tangible way uh, a good Right, which is the university's respect for the accomplishments of the individuals they're honoring. Now, rather than just say, hey guys, well done, the ceremony is a way to physically manifest that respect and admiration and the university's desire to celebrate significant accomplishments. Now, it's obviously developed. 
and could have developed differently. But as long as it seems a fitting way to celebrate and honor laudable people, there's no real need to change it much. Um, presumably, if it does change, it will do so to better accomplish its goals to embody honor and celebration. It's a bit like wedding ceremonies or commencements or Independence Day parades or presidential inaugurations, each of which are traditioned ways of acknowledging and celebrating good things. So we're all aware of traditions. They start at some point, but then as they're handed down, they're often slightly changed or modified, all while keeping some core idea, practice or commitment. Right. These core ideas, beliefs, practices, goals or institutions that carry the tradition forward. And most of them have stories, images, legends, heroes and saints that kind of embody the tradition and inspire those who come after. So what about the tradition that we call classical education? Well, like these others, it's a living tradition. And the contemporary educators, like many who might be listening to this, are simply the last in a long line of educators trying to embody and pursue some set of goods or pursue some set of ends through the methods, materials, and morals that we help our students attend to, which sometimes are identical with our classical ancestors, but sometimes aren't. Shouldn't take this tradition a whole lot differently than you might think of something like the development of the Christian church, right? I take it that some people within the church have the impression that the Holy Spirit left the earth around 90 AD and returned to earth during the second great awakening. And no one's really sure what's happened between. Well, if you know anything about the history of the church, uh, that's not the way it happened. And that's not the way it happened uh, with classical education either. It didn't end with the collapse of Rome only to be revived suddenly in early 1980s America. Of course, it began in the increasingly democratic 5th century BC Athens with Socrates, Plato, Isocrates and Aristotle. Right. <laughs> They began a way of educating that didn't simply prepare young men. And then it was largely men, though in earlier stages of education, it was certainly boys and girls. But they began a way of educating that didn't prepare people for limited practical vocational roles like soldier, scribe or accountant, but tried to prepare them of course, to liberate them to live a flourishing life of thought, action, and creation, regardless of whether they were soldiers, playwrights, politicians, or businessmen. And, and they tried to do so on behalf of their city-state of Athens. Right? So those individuals, they set up schools of higher education to which students could come after their earlier education in musical performance and moral stories at what's sometimes called the Lyre School, L-Y-R-E. Uh, reading at the letter school and gymnastic at the palestra. Now, if you know your history, you'll know that Isocrates, the sophist, was the first to set up one of these schools, followed by Plato, Aristotle, and others. Then, under Alexander the Great, of course, Aristotle's student of a couple of years, their, their similar but not identical visions and practices spread throughout the world in the age of Hellenism. This then was received and refined by Roman orators, think folks like Seneca, Cicero, Quintilian, who, unlike Socrates and Plato, 
were actually quite enamored with the rhetoric of a sophist like Isocrates and made it one of the preeminent arts of the tradition. You, you get up, you pick up this uh, introduction of Greek education into Rome and that great line from Horace in his second epistle uh, that captive Greece took captive her savage conqueror and brought civilization to barbarous Latium. Plutarch later will say it, when the Greek teachers came into Rome, it was like a wind sweeping through the city. People could talk about nothing else. But it didn't end there, right? Because this tradition was then received and developed by North African Christians like Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Jerome, and Augustine. And Christians of Asia Minor, like Gregory and Basel, who had been educated at Plato's Academy in Athens. And they, of course, grappled with how to combine pagan wisdom with divine revelation and gave us a set of famous metaphors for thinking about that. But it was these three distinct Mediterranean cultures, these three educational traditions, the Greeks, the Romans, and North African Christians, that then handed on classical liberal arts education. And it was different than it would have been had it only come from one of those traditions. But they handed it on to abbots and abbesses and monasteries and convents like the men Cassiodorus and Isidore or women like Leoba and Dererka, who handed it on to cathedral and palace schoolmasters like Alcuin and Rabanus Maris, to medieval professors and scholars like Hugh of St. Victor, John of Salisbury, Thomas Aquinas, Eloise, who handed it on to Renaissance scholars like Erasmus, Johann Reuschland, Jean Collet, to European reformers like Philip Melanchthon, early modern thinkers like Milton, and 19th and 20th century classicists and teachers like John Henry Newman, Anna Julia Cooper, Dorothy Sayers, Mark Van Doren, and John Sr., which led then to the current 21st century renewal. Of course, along the way, there were also streams of Islamic and Jewish classical educators and many well-educated aristocratic women who passed on the tradition through letters, books, and their own children. Here I'm thinking of folks like Duoda, Hilda, Hildegard, Catherine of Siena, Julian of Norwich, Christine de Bazan, Bethsua Macon, Margaret Moore, Queen Elizabeth I, Anna Julia Cooper, and others. But most of the educators who developed and passed on this tradition were local teachers local schoolmasters, local university scholars whose names are really lost to history and were known only to their students. And, you know, that's most of us. So like us, like them, we have this role in passing on this tradition. Of course, you know, think about the tradition. Along the way, there were texts that were lost and rediscovered. Aristotle's logic texts, Cicero's Hortensius, which inspired Augustine uh, and has never been found. Or, of course, the 113 plays of Sophocles that we don't have. We have seven. 113 have been lost. Other classic texts weren't known for hundreds of years that we now read, like the Epic epic of Gilgamesh, of course, a, a Persian epic. Or that were only known secondhand, like Homer and many of the Greek texts. And of course, along the way, new books, new works of art, new discoveries, new insights, new practices were absorbed by their tradition. No one read Dante, saw Michelangelo, heard Mozart, watched Shakespeare, or experienced Flannery O'Connor before they wrote, painted, and composed. As I mentioned, it even took almost a thousand years for the seven liberal arts of the trivium and quadrivium to be identified and accepted as a set of seven. 
That wasn't really settled until the 5th century AD, what, eight, nine hundred years after Plato and Aristotle, when the late Roman educator Martianus Capella wrote his somewhat turgid allegory, The Marriage of Mercury and Philology. Even so, educators debated how the seven liberal arts were to be integrated with a larger scope of education that included gymnastic, fine and performing arts, the mechanical or practical arts, and the sciences of metaphysical philosophy, divine philosophy, natural philosophy, which we think of as natural science, and moral philosophy. And the Stoics and Aristotle and Hugh of St. Victor and Bonaventure each had their own way of organizing this growing body of knowledge, arts, skills, and disciplines. And of course, we've seen the popularity of rhetoric rise and fall depending on the particular political, religious, and cultural circumstances of each era. And the dialogues of Socrates led to the internal dialogues Augustine had with God, which led to medieval disputation and the dialogical scholasticism of Thomas Aquinas, which led to modern debate. So, We've seen development. We've seen change. We've seen growth. Now, let me just draw out a few implications of this. First, the contemporary practice of the tradition of classical liberal arts arts education draws on each of these eras. But, and this is important to understand and to explain to others, the contemporary practice doesn't try to replicate any one of these moments. Whether 350 BC Athens, 450 AD Rome, 1250 Oxford, or 1950 Topeka, Kansas. All right, so each successive generation receives the tradition, modifies it, develops it, adds to it, finds new things that are useful, finds things that aren't useful, and passes on to the next generation a slightly modified version of the same. Sometimes, of course, a generation might corrupt it or abandon important aspects of it. And the next generation sometimes finds aspects of the tradition useful that may have been practiced by an older generation, but left unused or abandoned by the immediately prior generation. And so it goes back and picks up some text or practice or institution because it deems it either true, good and beautiful or simply necessary in its moment. And of course, as I've mentioned, traditions absorb new insights, authors, and old ones newly discovered. And it addresses new challenges. And of course, shards and strands of the tradition can be found in nearly every school. Just that classical education is an attempt to return the shards of education into a coherent whole, like restoring a broken stained glass window, or reweaving unraveled threads back into a useful and beautiful garment it was intended to be. But it's not just trying to imitate, or it's just trying to replicate. Now, it's also important, I think, secondly, to understand that the contemporary practice of classical liberal arts education is not rooted in nostalgia. We're not pining for some golden age that never existed, not perpetuating a narrative of demise and lament because people can't adjust to the modern or the real world. As an aside, the real world is a phrase I've always forbidden my students from using because they usually mean something like social media or the stock market when they refer to the real world. Third, it's also important to see that the tradition, the contemporary practice of this tradition, isn't rooted in antiquarianism as if classical educators are interested in books and authors simply because they're old, simply because they're dusty, or simply because we have copies of centuries-old texts. 
If that was the case, then you might find classical schools reading books and plays like the following. Tell me if you've ever read these. Atrocities of a Convent. The Bachelor's Journal, inscribed without permission to the girls of England. The Bloody Hand, or The Fatal Cup, A Tale of Horror. The Mysterious Hand, Oh Subterranean Horror. The Mysterious Husband. The Mysterious Pregnancy. Mystery Upon Mystery. My favorite, Walter the Murderer. Or, Love Letters Between a Nobleman and His Sister. I don't even want to know. The li- my, what, another favorite, The Life and Extraordinary Adventures, The Perils and Critical Escapes of Timothy Jenadrake, That Child of Checkered Fortune. Or the book, The Three Perils of Men. Or, or sorry, The Three Perils of Man. Or, War, Women, and Witchcraft. Or, perhaps we would be taking our students to see performances of these plays, Patient Grizel, Mother Bombie, The Stepmother's Tragedy, The Disobedient Child, The Honest Whore. But we don't. However, you want to know what else was written when these books and plays were? Pilgrim's Progress, Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, Brothers Karamazov, Pride and Prejudice, Tale of Two Cities, Silas Marner, Lilith, War and Peace, Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, Rime of the Ancient Mariner, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Dr. Faustus, Midsummer Night's Dream, and King Lear. So you can do the same for theology, philosophy, music, or art. So we don't just read books because they're old. We're not antiquarians looking to escape our time. And we're not reading things just because they exist. Now, finally, other implication. It's important to recognize that traditions aren't monolithic, and they can be self-critical. Not everyone in the tradition agrees even about very important matters. Aristotle, Christine de Bazan, Philip Melanchthon, W.B. Du Bois, Hannah Arendt, and C.S. Lewis are each important figures in the tradition. And while very similar on some issues, they're very, very different on others. And of course, because contemporary classical schools can now be found in the United States, Canada, China, Brazil, England, and across the African continent with schools that are confessionally Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and non-religious, And because we also have new authors and insights and discoveries to consider and incorporate, it's clear to me that the tradition will continue to develop as it ever has, and that educators will find new ways to channel those three original Mediterranean cultures, the Greeks, the Romans, and the North African Christians that were the fountainheads for this spring, well, that will continue to channel them to use different parts of them to irrigate and give life to arid places and thirsty people. See, traditions offer us normative guidelines about what is important and often at least half lights about what is true, good, beautiful, holy, healthy, and useful. So while we engage them with a discriminating eye, discerning wheat from chaff, we also to some degree rest in them and trust them. Trust them like we trust accumulated practical wisdom. Whether it's religious, political, philosophical, or familial tradition, we trust them, learn from them, and over time, perceive the wisdom and perpetuate it. And sometimes we judge portions of it to be defective or less than they could be, and we reject those portions and modify them. That. Sometimes happens when we encounter something that improves upon or usually is more coherent, integrated, or truer in some way than what we already know or that what we receive. 
And this long tradition of classical liberal arts education is no different. But I will say this, as I, as I conclude, it's an exciting time to be part of this tradition when it does appear to be undergoing a resurgence in K-12 schools, undergraduate colleges, universities, and graduate programs, and where a good number of the threads that have frayed are being woven back together into a more coherent and life-giving whole. Now, in future podcasts, I want to come back to the Principia, the first enduring things at the heart of this tradition and which makes it and keeps it a recognizable tradition. However, I'm not done with ruminating on tradition yet. I, I think that deserves a little more thought, a little more rumination. So in the next podcast, we're going to continue reflecting on the concept of tradition and draw on several metaphors for thinking about tradition from thinkers like G.K. Chesterton, Yaroslav Pelikan, Alistair McIntyre, and John Henry Newman. Now, unfortunately, none of them were available to be interviewed, so I'll just have to animate their words on my own. Now, here's a couple questions for next time, or until next time. If you're involved in classical education, do you think renewing or recovering is the right language to use? Or is it better to simply say we are practicing, perpetuating, and passing on a long tradition that has never entirely gone away? Another question, how does the developing history of the tradition or the concept of tradition inform the way you think about this tradition and your role in it? So a couple questions until our next podcast where we will pick up some of these threads and continue reflecting on tradition. And with that, folks, I will sign off and I'll let you get on with pursuing the true, good, beautiful, holy, healthy and useful wherever you are. You've been listening to Dr. Brian I. Williams, and this is the Principia Journal podcast.